morning to turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's where I've been for a while. And we'll be back in Philippians chapter 1 again this morning. And you may remember that, uh, and I'll, I'll be specifically looking at verses 27 through 30 again. You'll remember that I had preached this text back on February 21st. Now, just to bring your mind back to February 21st, our beloved pastor had was spending his first Lord's Day in jail and away from his flock. And in that sermon, I we looked at Paul's instruction to the Corinthians or to the to the Christians in Philippi, sorry, and he he exhorts them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we looked at the manner of living living that accompanies and also that accompanies the. Um, sorry, let me say that again. We looked at the manner of living accompanied by that's accompanied by certain attitudes and behaviors. And these attitudes and behaviors were evident in those who are genuinely saved through faith in Jesus Christ. These attitudes, this manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, was to be lived out. And we examined in that, that morning, we examined the demand that gospel living has places on each one of us. We looked at the descriptions that Paul gives us for gospel living. And then we also looked at the difficulties of gospel living as well. And this morning, I want to return to these same verses, although we'll only take a look at verses 27 and 28 this morning. And so we won't get through the entire text. And this, in order to focus more intently on the theme that I believe is very evident throughout Paul's letter. Now, a majority of people perhaps believe that the word joy, in a nutshell, really describes this letter of Paul's to the Philippians. This is the overarching theme, and it comes up again and again. Repeatedly, he mentions joy and rejoicing. But I believe that there is a strong argument that can be made that uh, would contribute to viewing unity as a central theme in this letter, if not the overarching theme. And we see this here in 27, and then throughout to the end of verse 30, and then even into chapter 2, he returns to this theme of unity and really exhorts the church, the local church, Towards this unity, there must be a unity within Christ's body in Philippi. And Paul has ample reason to exhort unity to the Philippians. Now we know that he has, in his letter, described current and imminent persecution. He's already faced imprisonment himself and continues in that. And even while he's in prison, there are those that are further caught, they're, they're desiring to, to cause further distress to him in his imprisonment. And he even mentions the very real possibility of death. We've looked at that over the last few Sundays. And so certainly there's an exhortation necessary for unity 
in the face of persecution. And then he also writes of and describes pride and ambition that is influencing, maybe influencing people in the church among those who even proclaim Christ. And we need to realize that this sinful condition of the heart that Paul describes, along with its motives and its its desires, are only divisive, and they're not representative of Christ's likeness. And so for the reasons of pride and ambition that surround the people in Philippi, certainly there is need to call each and every person to unity within the local body. He also describes false teachers and then describes a circumstance where there's contention within the church. This certainly places stresses on the church. And these stresses can be both external and internal, as we see in Paul's letter. Externally, he describes dogs and evil workers and those of the false circumcision who are coming up against the church. And internally, he describes a fracture between two women requiring counsel. And he knows that this kind of discord in the church certainly tarnishes the very cause of Christ. And then he also addresses the material needs of not only himself, but the Philippians. And so Paul then exhorts uh, exhorts them to prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. And not only that, but he exhorts that they would be content with the things that are given to them. And he expresses this while at the same time stating an appreciation for their support of him meeting his own needs. And all the while, he acknowledges God's hand in supplying for all of their needs. It reminds me of early in the book of Acts where the church is selling their possessions and bringing them, laying them at the feet of the apostles so that they can distribute as each has need. And this is the example of the Philippians, but that's only accomplished through a unity within the church. And at the same time, just to further drive home this theme of unity, we need to realize that scattered throughout this letter are Paul's imperatives to the corporate body, to be obeyed in a collective sense. These are second-person plural verbs. They address you all, not you individuals, but you all. And so... This morning, I've titled the sermon, Prioritizing Unity in the Local Church. Prioritizing Unity in the Local Church. And we'll see in these verses that the Apostle Paul characterizes local church unity in three ways. And he does this so that you, race life, you too can be exhorted to the same character within this local body. So there's much purpose in there for us. And I divide this again into three sections. And so first we'll look at the precepts that informs unity in the beginning of verse 27. The precept that informs local church unity. And then secondly, we'll look at the properties of this unity in verses 27 through 28. So the properties of unity. I have to be careful that when I say unity, I don't say this unity, because that sounds like this unity. 
That's not at all what I'm saying. And I'll clarify that. When I'm talking about disunity, I'll make sure that you know. And then thirdly, the privileges of unity. There are great privileges that come along together with unity, and we'll see those in verses 29 and 30, but I'll touch on those the first uh, Sunday in September. And so first, let's, let's take a look at this precept that Paul gives that informs unity. So let's actually read through the text, and then we'll return to this first point. So beginning in verse 27 and reading through to the end of 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. And so first, let's take a look at this precept that informs the church's unity. Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the precept. But what is a precept? I've already used a, a term that needs some definition. And for the greatest definition, we would go directly to the Word of God. Psalm 119 speaks often of precepts. In verse 4, we read, You have ordained your precepts, that we should keep them diligently. And then again in Verses 127 through 128, the psalmist writes, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So then from these verses, we could really define a precept as any obligation that's established by God to those that are within a community who have avowed obedience to Him. So this is a general rule intended to govern behavior or thought of those who have placed their trust in God. Now we need to begin by noticing this word that Paul uses to begin verse 27. He writes, only, and this is meant to draw our attention to one singular idea. And wrapped up within it is also a sense of warning. It's kind of like you've just received instructions from a parent, and you're about to step out the door, but your mother or father raises their finger one last time and says, only, remember this one thing, 
This is what is of most importance. And so, this really to point out the precept, this command that Paul is going to give, this imperative, which literally means you all live. When we receive imperatives in the Word of God, typically the word you or you all is absent, and it's just the verb itself that's given, the action itself, I should say. And so the NASB translates this as conduct yourselves, but literally it means that you ought to live or lead your life in a certain way. And we need to understand then also to, to get a better understanding of this, we need to understand that this verb is actually derived from a noun. And a noun meaning one who lives in or comes from a city or a country. And so really, this has the, this, the concept of citizen or citizenship built within it. And Paul only employs this term one other time. And he does so while he stands before the council at Jerusalem. And he describes how he conducted himself as a citizen. And Luke records this in Acts 23 and verse 1, where he writes, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And so to the listeners, they would have heard the, the idea of citizenship built within the way, the pattern of life by which Paul lived. And so Paul is communicating this concept of living in light of one's citizenship. But we also need to understand then how the, how the Philippians viewed themselves. You see, in, in Macedonia, the, the region of Macedonia, which included Philippi, fell into Roman hands in 168 B.C. And Philippi's prominence came as the result of a very famous battle which was fought on its plains in October of 42 B.C. And you recognize some of these famous names in world history because the armies of Octavian and Mark Antony came together to face Cassius and, and Brutus, who were Julius Caesar's assassins. And these four figures in world, his, world history each assembled together an army unto themselves. And I'm told that when all the armies were present in the region of Phil, in the area of Philippi, it numbered somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 troops. Now, Cassius was defeated by Mark Antony's troops very early on in October. But Brutus and his army required a second battle in order for Octavian to defeat them. And it was this victory, this major defeat by Octavian that led to the honor of Philippi being made a Roman colony. So there was a special honor placed on, on the city of Philippi at this time as it became known as an official Roman colony. And together with that came an influx of veterans who had fought in this war who settled there then. And together with 
other Roman colonies, other cities that were considered Roman colonies, became great status, became much privilege, and even immunities, including the immunity to taxation. So people were free from taxation as a result of having Roman colony status. It's kind of like Manitoba, you know, looking wrongfully at Alberta because there's no PSP here. And so you can imagine how the residents at Philippi, they actually esteemed this Roman heritage that they had received. And so Paul is, is likely here addressing then a misguided priority among the Christian converts in Philippi. He wants to correct their perspective to ensure that they understand the priority of their citizenship and where their citizenship, citizenship lies. And to ensure this, he even in chapter 3 and verse 20, he spells it out for us. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which, for which, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Christian's citizenship. Not the allures of Roman citizenship, together with all of its privileges, but no, he, he desires to stress the necessity here, the necessity of this citizenship. And so he, he takes time to modify it in this. It's not just live as a, as a, as a citizen, but he goes on to say, live as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he adds to this imperative to clarify. So there's a worthy manner that's corresponding to the citizenship, and it stems out of the gospel. And an implication then here could be the possibility that somebody could be living in Philippi together with the believers who is not living in a worthy manner, right? If he's instructing or commanding, giving this precept toward uh, living in a manner worthy, then certainly that means that there is an unworthy manner also that can be lived in, and one that would then not be in accordance with the gospel of Christ. So Paul prescribes this precept. And together with it comes this implied warning then, only be careful, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, because there is also other manners of living that are not worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we've, we've heard similar words from Paul before in other letters, but he articulates himself uniquely here in verse 27. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then again in Colossians 1 and verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And also to the Thessalonians, he wrote so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. And so we see in these exhortations, 
where he's calling them to walk in a certain manner, he's addressing how they are to progress through life. It's a journey. And at the same time, he's addressing how they ought to regulate and conduct themselves as they journey, as they progress through life. But to the Philippians, he speaks differently. He addresses their mutual and corporate responsibilities as citizens of heaven. And he does this together with stressing a proper allegiance then to Christ. Because every citizen has an allegiance, right? The Roman citizens had an allegiance to Caesar, whereas the citizen of heaven has an allegiance to Christ. And now to properly consider what a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is, we actually need to look then beyond the salvific event, the salvific aspect of the gospel, to the mutual and corporate results of the gospel. You see, it impacts our hearts and it causes us to live in a different manner, set apart from the world. And so we need to understand this directly as it relates to the life of the local church. And then we need to strive towards a mutual and corporate manner of living whereby the gospel then is going to be promoted. Now, we need to remember that the imperative here is to the collective. It's the second person plural. So it's you all. And so we ought to view it as such. But then the question could be asked, what are the mutual and corporate manners that Christians are obliged to and which are even fostered by the gospel within the church. And to look at at some of these, I have enlisted the help of um, the Master's Plan for the Church. It's written by Dr. MacArthur, and in chapter 2 of that book, he actually lists the manners that are to be found within the local church. And he describes them as the internal structures This is the manner of the gospel of Christ, the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so, in it, he describes obedience. This is refusing to compromise on what the Lord God has commanded, but rather to glorify Him through obedience and thereby receive corporate blessings, while at the same time serving as a testimony to unbelievers and an example to believers. That's what our obedience does. And in 1 John chapter 2, and verses 4 through 6, we hear this explained. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, there's that aspect of obedience, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So it's an obedience manner, following after the pattern established by Christ in his commandments. And now I I understand that in 1 John here, John is addressing individuals, right? But at the same time, 
It could be said, the same could be said for the local church, right? The local church that says that it's walking in obedience, yet is not, is a liar. And we need to consider that carefully. And so obedience is one of the mannerisms of, a man, of walking in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. And there's humility. This ought to be the prevailing attitude in the church, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, as Paul defines it in chapter 2. And we'll look at that in just a, a few weeks. We'll get into chapter 2 and look at the theme of humility that's presented there. Thirdly, there's a, a love that's present within the local church. It unifies the church. It's being, it's, it's really being determined to give of yourself freely, and then that of from your affections. And we've been commanded to this. In fact, this is the command that that Jesus gave his disciples. He says, "This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you." So it's patterned after the very sacrificial love of Christ. He goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. So clearly it's sacrificial. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's John 15 and verses 12 through 14. And there tagged on at the end, that love actually produces obedience as well. We see that. And fourthly, there's a, a unity within the church that John describes that uh, John describes in his gospel, even as he records Jesus' prayer in the garden, where Jesus says these words, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me that they may all be one. This is a unity that is brought about by responding to the gospel, being brought then into union with the Father, with Christ. So we've seen there's obedience, there's love, there's humility, there's this unity. It's also a willingness to serve in the church. And we see this willingness even again in Paul's letter here as he describes the willingness of Epaphroditus. And we see this in chapter 2 and verses 29 and 30 where we read, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. We see a willingness to serve not only Paul by bringing him something, but also to be the messenger sent out by the church. There's a willingness to serve there. And that willingness to serve helps foster the unity that's required, that's necessary, even as people exercise their spiritual gifts the building up of the body in the local church. Then certainly there's a joy that is present within a unified church. It'll be different than in a church that it, where that is experiencing disunity. There'll be a lack of joy. But here we have joy that is really the evidence of God's sovereignty in the life of the church. 
right? When God's sovereignty is recognized, joy results. There's rejoicing in the church. And also peace. There's a peace within the local body. And this is evidence of trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. That's what brings about this peace. And then not only peace, but there's a thankfulness. And thankfulness is the evidence of being satisfied in the sufficiency of God. And so we see many descriptors of this manner that is worthy, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. These are the evidences that are present in the local body when they are actually conducting themselves, when you are conducting yourself in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's corporate discipline. There's being prepared for spiritual warfare and actually engaging in that. There's a mutual accountability among the people. Forgiveness takes place. It's a regular practice. There's a dependence upon God constantly for continued direction. There's a desire to to see recognizable growth among the body of believers. There's a a faithfulness, a long-term spiritual commitment that's evidenced as the body continues to, to, to gather for worship and fellowship. Preaching and teaching carries on. Serving continues. Various ministries where people are using their gifts, that continues. And all of that to display the faithfulness of the body of Christ that is the local church. And at the same time, recognizing that faithfulness is no respecter of seasonal regulations. We see that in the book of Daniel, don't we? 30 days. 30 days. That's what was required of them. Daniel said, no, not 30 days. And so faithfulness, we could even go as far as to say that faithfulness resembles how Paul describes his own life, where he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. This fighting the good fight is faithfulness. It's faithfulness among the unified body of believers in the local church. And in fact, we'll touch on that even more when we get to verse 30 because he described the conflict, the struggle, the fight that he's engaged in, that they've seen him continually be engaged in, and that they've also heard even about presently. And then we could also say that there's hope within the church, and this is something that I touched on way back when we were meeting out in the countrysides. We looked at hope and how that's looking ahead with certainty, not in the realm of possibilities, but it actually is, Christian hope is looking ahead with certainty, anticipating the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so, conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this he says to the church, to the unified body of believers, this is how you ought to be living your life among one another. And Paul goes on even to say, whether I come and see you or remain absent. So they have to continue on. Consistency is required. Whether, Whether your beloved pastor is present with you or if he's in prison, the church continues on, unified 
as one. And this is how we too must live in unity. Why? Why would we live this way? Well, because it's worthy of Christ. It's worthy of Christ. And so, you see how the precept informs our unity. And you see how this precept that Paul gives really informs how unity ought to be displayed, manifested in the local body. The question then is, given all that, are you living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Or maybe I could ask, are you more Canadian than you are Christian? What is your identity? Right? What do you hold near and dear to your heart? What do you, what's your go-to? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's an ethnicity that you cling to more than you cling to Christ, to your identification as a citizen of heaven. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a, another affiliation. I love the way Paul discards his own credentials, and we see this in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. First of all, he describes all that he could be described as, really. Right? This is how people could view his identity. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Those sound like pretty good credentials. And I'm sure that he had a lot of pride wrapped up in those as he was continuing on in his sinfulness before the Damascus Road conversion. However, what does he go on to say there? I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Let me back up to the beginning of that verse. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That needs to be us. We need to set aside all other identities, so to speak. We need to identify ourselves first and foremost as Christians within the body of Christ here at Grace Life. And so we see how this precept informs the character of unity in the local church. That's point one. Let's move on to the second point that Paul makes here regarding unity, where he describes the properties of this unity. In verses 27 and 28, he describes these properties. Let's let's read the text again. Direct your attention back into the Word. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And so here we see Paul describe really three component parts, properties to the unity that makes unity visible and identifiable 
in the corporate gathering. And these, I would say, undergird the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul anticipates these three actions will, in fact, be reported to him when he gets a report about the church in Philippi. First, that they will be found to be standing firm. And this must be the local church's current and continual posture. He's speaking in the present tense there, that they would be continually in the immediate present, but then also ongoing. They means found to be standing firm, firmly committed in her convictions, remaining steadfast, immovable. And Paul uses this term elsewhere. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, where he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And so this stand is done, the stand is completed upon the foundation of the Christian faith. That's where the stand is made. And in another text, in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verses 7 and 8, regarding Timothy's report, Paul writes this, For this reason, brethren, in all our distresses and afflictions, we were comforted about you through your faith, for now we really live. If you stand firm in the Lord. And so this stand, even as Paul is recognizing it here from Timothy's report, it provides the evidence of an encouragement from the genuine community of believers. And it involves holding to the apostles' teaching as well, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.16. And in Galatians 5 and verse 1, This stand prevents the Galatians from reverting back to works of the law and turning away from the freedom that they have found in Christ. This stand is also described for us in the Septuagint, where in the Old Testament Greek, we see it in Proverbs and also in the book of Joshua, this stand is described as having established ways in order not to turn to the right or to the left. And we've heard that even in Deuteronomy 17 this morning. Standing means not turning in either direction, but remaining steadfast and moving forward. And Joshua as well. It's not turning to the right or to the left. And there's purpose in that so that you may have success wherever you go. And so this stand is vitally important for us as well. And it requires tenacity. It it requires our determination. It requires our perseverance. But the question then is, by what means is this stand then accomplished? We can't do this on our own, can we? How do we accomplish this? By what means? Well, Paul goes on to say, it's by one spirit. This is a unified attitude within the body of Christ. And it's without division. This is, a, this is Paul focusing on the collective attitude, which is to be present in the local body. Now, I realize that at the same time, the Holy Spirit is fostering the ability to stand firm with a unified attitude of heart. But here, and because 
in the section from 27 and even continuing on well into chapter 2, he's speaking of human attitudes here. I believe that this one spirit is not referring to the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit fosters this, this spirit, this attitude within the church. Rather, this is the collective attitude of the people. And then also in like-mindedness. This is with one mind. And we see this even expressed, a similar sentiment expressed in Acts 4 and verse 32, where the posture in the early church is described. We read in verse 32 of Acts 4, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And so these believers were of one heart and one soul. And that's what I believe Paul is, is getting at here. This is the manner, this is how, these are the properties, the identifying characteristics of how one would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm with one, in one spirit. And then also striving together with one mind, striving together. This is the second property of church unity. Paul here uses a compound word that means to contend together. So this isn't an individual battle by any means. This is the body of Christ coming together in a unified stance and actually contending. The same word is used to describe competing in athletic contests of wrestling and combat in arenas. And not individually, but team efforts. And so Paul is exhorting the Philippians here to a team effort, participating in a shared struggle toward a common goal. What is this common goal? Well, it's striving in the Christian faith, which concerns the gospel, including its proclamation. Now, we've seen since March 2020, the majority of local churches in our nation have not stood firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. They've, I would say they've been lacking in these essential properties of unity, unable to collectively live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in most cases, as I've been made aware, in most cases, churches have then chosen to obey Caesar rather than Christ. Jonathan Edwards writes, A house divided cannot itself, a house divided against itself cannot stand, nor can any army effectively advance against the enemy while its ranks are turned against one another. This theme of unity runs throughout the entire epistle of Philippians, and this unity has a specific purpose undergirding it. That is the advancement of the gospel. We do this for no other reason than to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. That is our message. That's why unity is essential. Now, we can easily look to other churches, can we not? But let's not overlook ourselves. We, too, can come under the threat of 
finding ourselves in a state of disunity. We too can suffer from disunity. This happens when personal pride overpowers humble service. This happens when the vision and direction of leadership is rejected, even spoken against, where factions are formed. This happens when unbiblical counsel is promoted, specifically in regards to sin. And this happens when issues requiring reconciliation within the local body remain unresolved. Then the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is certainly compromised. The suffering of disunity in the local churches due to government overreach, I would say for me, is direct evidence of the enemy at work. And the reason I say that is because it is Christ who unifies his church, and it is Satan who seeks to divide the church. And so let us walk in a manner, let us live in a manner, rather, worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. But there's a third property here as well. And in the closing minutes here, let me just touch on that as well. Paul writes, and I direct your attention back to verse 28 and near the end. Paul writes, In no way alarmed by your opponents, not being intimidated nor frightened by the adversary. This is a word that sometimes is used to describe a skittish horse. Easily frightened. But rather, we need to have ongoing and unrelenting, uh, we need to be ongoing and unrelenting in our stand, even in the face of resistance, so that resistance against us falls short of making any progress. This could include entities that come against the church events or conditions that can deter the local church, we can't be intimidated. Our confidence and our boldness must not be shaken. We must remain of good courage, even as Paul is exhorting those in Philippi to do the same. And Paul here affirms the local church as well. Again, back in verse 28, we see that this which, sorry, I, I should read it just as it is in the NASB, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So there is purpose, even amidst this ongoing struggle that's taking place, because the, uni the unity is put on visible display. And that means that Paul, even as he anticipates it, will find that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way being alarmed of their opponents. And it exposes the imminent destruction of those who come up against the church. This is proof of a disadvantage towards them. It's to their own detriment, and ultimately to their eternal ruin. Paul uses this same term, destruction, even as Jesus uses 
this term in John 17 and verse 12 to describe Judas. He's described as the son of perdition. And this, this term points out the end of the wicked, which really speaks of a sign of their destruction. This is a sign of their imminent and eternal destruction. So this is not necessarily immediate, but it is eschatological, and it is certain. That's what Paul has in mind here. And we can see, given the context, that this is, this is an already and not yet sort of paradigm that is being laid out here. Because even as the opponents are coming up against this unified body of believers, it's a sign of destruction that will ultimately see future fulfillment. And their destruction is also, we could say, the antithesis to what he's describing here towards their own salvation. And salvation here, again, is, is current, but also there's an eschatological flavor to it, and it will ultimately and completely be disclosed or realized in the future. So there's an already and not yet paradigm at play here as well, with it being a sign of their salvation currently, but ultimately a final salvation. So we see that Paul marks a stark contrast between the damnation and eternal punishment of those who oppose and the salvation and the eternal life for those who are not in any way intimidated. They are not afraid. Well, all this, as Paul writes, is, is from God because he is the authoritative agent who brings about the ends of both. He brings both to an end. So we've seen the precept that informs the unity of the, in the local church, and we've seen these three properties that make up unity that's visible and identifiable clearly in the local church. I just add a, an additional thought here. Some years ago, Nine Marks Ministries came out with a church or with with a book, a publication called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And I would say that nine is not an exhaustive number. More could be added. And so I would add two, two more to this list here this morning. I would add to that that a biblical understanding of the God-ordained spheres of authority is the mark of a healthy church, that we understand the authority structures that God has put in place, that we would understand those clearly. And then there's a direct correlation here from my 10th point to number 11. So the 11th mark of a healthy church then would be a biblical response in the face of persecution. A biblical response in the face of persecution. And really, Paul has helped us to understand this and understand it a lot better even here in this text by exhorting us to a unified allegiance to Christ. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the picture of a unified local body of believers then he also gives to us when he says that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, even as they face ongoing persecution. 
Well, two points this morning. Two points. The precepts of unity that Paul prescribes, and then also the properties of this unity. And Lord willing, on September 5th, we'll look at the third characteristic of this unity, which I've titled the privileges, because there are privileges that arise out of unity. And we see those privileges expressed in verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, in conclusion, I would say this, and this comes about even as I consider who were some of the people that read this letter. Could we possibly know who read this letter? Whose eyes landed upon this or who heard this letter read in the local church? I think we can. We know, according to Acts chapter 18, or 16, I should say, that Paul's ministry took him to Philippi. And that there was salvation among people, even as he proclaimed the gospel. One of those being the jailer, who asked this question, what must I do to be saved? Right? You remember him asking that question? And then, as Paul proclaimed the gospel, not only was he saved, but his entire household, it says, was baptized. And so, I ask you this morning, there are certainly people sitting among us here who are not part of the unified body of Christ. You have not yet surrendered yourself to God. You, are, you remain unreconciled to Him. And this morning, I'd like to call you again to repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Lord sent to save rebels, those who are in rebellion, to God and the things that He commanded. If you're breaking even one of the commands, you're guilty of them all. You came into this world sinful, and you continue in your sins. But it doesn't have to be that way, friends. You can surrender yourself to Christ, trust in His death, His burial, His resurrection, and that the wrath of God was satisfied, even as the sin of man was placed on the Savior's shoulders, but at the same time, trusting in that sacrifice, His sacrifice on your behalf, would then result in the righteousness of Christ being credited to your account. And I would say, today is the day. Don't wait another day. Last Sunday, we went home and received news of Two young girls, 17 and 15, who lost their lives in a tragic accident. They did not know that morning that life would come to an end. But they are now with Christ. But can the same be said of you? If that would be your destiny today, would the same be said of you? Turn to Christ. You can receive forgiveness of sin. God will give you a new heart. He'll extend grace to you. He'll gift you with both faith to believe and repentance to turn away from your sin and strength to continue in Christ. I don't know why anyone would reject that. I don't know why anyone would want to continue enslaved to sin. It's such a, a temporary and fleeting enjoyment. And yet we know that this 
This world is so, so short. Life is but a vapor. I'm reminded of a, a man who was on his deathbed. And uh, he was an unbeliever. And his, his stepson sat at his side and ministered to him. And this stepfather said, I'm all right. I'll be in heaven. And the stepson said to this man, he said, you have wanted nothing to do with God your entire life. Why would you want to spend an eternity with God? It makes no sense. And yet, this is the deception of so many people. They think that they can go through life living as they desire and then ultimately end up in heaven one day when they've had no desire to be um, obedient or submissive to God in any way. They've wanted no relationship with Him. But they want to enjoy and experience His his eternal glory, that eternal joy. It makes no sense, does it? Turn today. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You too will be saved. That's the promise that God gives. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful for your word and how it teaches us, how it reproves us, how it corrects us, and how it trains us in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. Father, I pray that your words would not... Um, depart from us even today, but Lord, that as we as we continue on, even in fellowship, that we'd be thinking about that unity that Paul exhorts, that he demands that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and that we do that corporately as the body of Christ, and that Christ through that would be glorified. Father, help us, give us strength to to stand firm, to strive together, to guard us against any fear of man that might come into our hearts, Lord. Help us to be courageous, give us strength that we would be frightened by nothing, but that we would desire, first and foremost, to proclaim Christ to the world that example out before us. We pray this in Christ's name.